As we've been talking about just over this last day or so, that every time we produce a story, we bring our own life's experiences to the, to the story, our own preconceptions and biases into the equation. While we're trained to have these variables in check, we always know that it's not always possible. We're human beings. For example, how do you report on the aftermath of a racially motivated murder in a town deeply divided along racial lines? Do you get the same story as a producer if you're white, if you're black, if you're Hispanic? I have a feeling that a lot of people in the room would say there's, you know, that's just not enough, of course, to know just the color of your skin, but that, that a lot of us would really disagree on the answer to that question. How much do you have to have that's actually similar to the, the story that you're covering? Do you have to be of the same race, the same background, the same age, the same economic um, background. Two friends, Whitney Dow and Marco Williams, took on this challenge when they came together to produce a documentary, The Two Towns of Jasper, about the murder of James Byrd in 1998. Byrd, as you may remember, was beaten and then chained to the back of a pickup truck and dragged to his death in Jasper, Texas. Whitney and Marco, who together form Two-Tone Productions, decided to take an uncommon approach to filming the documentary. They created two crews, one black to interview Jasper's black residents, including the Bird family, one white to interview the white residents and the family of the accused. In this next session, we're going to see the first 26 minutes of Two Towns of Jasper, and we're going to have a discussion on the issues it raises with the filmmakers. And your guide is Jennifer Fields. She's an award-winning producer at uh, Chicago Public Radio on the program 848, which is our morning news magazine. So thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Johanna. Hi, everybody. Hello, everybody. I guess we'll say good brunch, because I'm not quite sure what time it is. But um, I, when Johanna asked me to host this, I had a little bit of trepidation, because my family is based in the South, and we do... There is collective memory of incidences with my family. That being said, I'd like to introduce you to Whitney Dow and Marco Williams. And as Johanna said, we were watching the first 26 minutes of the piece, and I'd like to give it to Marco because he has some requests that he'd like to make of you. I'm going to first let Whitney say a couple words, and then maybe Whitney will let me say a couple words. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Editing. Two. It's two. That's a couple of words. Uh, is that a haiku? Do we win the iPod? Okay. Uh, food for thought. Uh, Whitney and I, obviously, we're filmmakers. We don't make radio. And so I wanted to propose to the audience, or we wanted to propose to the audience, that maybe you will close your eyes during the first five minutes of this uh, film as a way to have us think about how radio and film might intersect in terms of the documentary form, in terms of uh, thinking about how we make or find racial identifiers. Is it in an accent? Is it in a, in a voice? Is it in language? And in that way, in what way does language play or define some sense of who we are? So that's a proposal. You don't have to. I'm not going to walk up and down the aisle saying, 
your eyes are open, your eyes are closed, but if you might, and you'll, you'll pretty much be clear as to when that, that rough period is, is done. And then we hope that you'll open your eyes and watch the rest of the 20 or so minutes, and we'll be available to talk with you afterwards. I was going to the Texas State Police Olympics in Dallas. It was on a Sunday morning, and I left my house about 7 o'clock in the morning when they called me. They just said they had a body at a, by a cemetery in the road, and the first indication was it may have been a hit-and-run traffic accident. It appeared that a front end of this vehicle had got bumped and canted, and it appeared to be a, a tire mark similar to a yaw mark coming in. And I followed that the entire crime scene, thinking that it was a tire mark. What I was thinking, this is going to be the hit, easiest hit and run wreck that we'd ever worked because we were going to be able to follow that trail all the way to the guy's house. That much of it out on that side, that was the trail that ran approximately two miles. Uh, we got to notice in the that the the track that was on the road was not was not a rubber tire track that it was a brown dark substance but it wasn't tire tracks and uh the further we went the the more my heart was beating because things weren't as i was thinking they they were when we come down that hill walking this way um, to be honest with you i didn't see those drag marks go down this little old logging road, and we started walking, and the further we walked down that road, the more evidence we found. We found the tank top and T-shirt that he was wearing. We found both of his shoes. We found his dentures, and then we found the billfold. Then that's when I knew that that it wasn't going to be a hit-and-run accident. I knew it was a black man that was dead. Uh, hoping that it was a black man that had killed him. Uh, but it didn't turn out that way. I was in the church. My answering service paid me. It was the Jasper Police Department. And uh, they requested my services on the Huff Creek Railway. Pick up an unidentified black male. They said the deputy told us that as we go down the road the next two or three miles, we would see markings in the road. He instructed us not to drive over any of the markings to go around it. At one point, we even stopped. Yeah, we stopped. And I looked to make, because he was, yeah, yeah. he didn't believe that it was a blood trail. I said, that, that's blood. Yeah. And we stopped and looked. I said, this can't be blood. Not this far? Not this far. I don't know, it's not, he said, yeah, that's blood. The hide off of Blood mixed with tissue. Skin, yeah. Skin tissue. The rubbing. Of, of his skin, the rubbing of the skin tissue, bloody 
skin tissue that made that streak down that road. I guess a mile down there, about a mile and a mile and a half. You see the tracks where the, the dragon swooped around that curve and it pulled his body his well to the side off in the ditch. And when it went off to the side of the ditch, then his head and all right across his shoulder caught that cover, a concrete cover. And that decapitated his head and his right arm. Right away we knew, well I felt, and I told my father at the time, I said, Daddy, they, I said some white people had did it. You just had that gut feeling that it was race related. Fun and games today. <laughs> Turn your lights off. Don't fuck it. Don't fuck it. This is Mike Loud for KJAS Radio News, reporting live from the Jasper County Courthouse. The stage is set, and 24-year-old William King will go on trial for the June dragging death of James Byrd, Jr. King is the first of three men to be tried in connection with a murder that shocked East Texas and the world. Continuing in the news at this hour, all uh, 15 members of the uh, Bird family are in uh, the courtroom today. Uh, Ronald King, the father of the defendant, um, Bill King, or William King, uh, continues to be in the courthouse as well. Now District Attorney Guy James Gray is coming to the podium. I, I think we have three guys that committed this crime, not just one. How many black jurors are there? All the judge permitted us to say that was that it was not an all-white jury. Can you tell us, please, sir, what are your thoughts on the eve of it? My thoughts are purely focused on uh, the evidence and the, the jury. Uh, this trial is it's more brutal and it's more racial than you guys anticipate. It's a bad case. We will continue throughout uh, the day to tell you what is going on here in the trial of uh, William King. This is Mike Lout for KJAS Radio News at the Jasper County Courthouse. Get this boy, get cold, you better get in there. Oh, did you order already? Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh, we got to get in there. <laughs> James Virginia spent many pleasant hours here playing music, cards, and dominoes. And drinking Thunderbird. 
Yeah, I thought he spent most of his time in jail. Yeah. <laughs> I still don't think, no matter what kind of person he was, that he should die that way. I think that it's wrong what they've done. I think it's very wrong what they've done, and I don't think there's any question that they've done it. But still, I want the defense to come out and tell who James Byrd was and what he was. Because James Byrd wasn't the pillar of the community that they made him out to be. I, I think you ought to be... Judge by the way you live, not the way you die. The whole community you know, knows how he is. They're portraying him that like he was a good Christian person. And they're naming yeah. city parks after him and giving his family all kinds of awards and money. money you, don't and he ought, you don't think he ought to be a martyr? No, I don't. I don't think I don't think he ought to be put up as a role model for our children. Good luck. Jasper, I don't think that per capita there's any more or less racism here than there is in an average town. No, I don't think there is. And I think if you go to any town and ask a black person if it's racist, they're going to say yes. Because any any little problem they have with a white person, and this is purely horrible for me to say this, and it's almost stereotypical, but almost every, every black person is going to tell you there's racism in their town. And a lot of white people are going to say no because they don't see it. We have our own little community, and they have their own little community. That doesn't mean that those communities can't overlap. We have our own uh, church, they have their own church. A lot of people aren't raised to be prejudiced, but you're taught to, to just keep your separate distances high by. And my matter of fact, my grandpa's told me just say hi to them, bye to them, but don't, don't fool with them, stay away from them. You know, the associations are broken. Pretty surface level. Basically, that fear. white folks killed 
and they put him in a trunk of an old abandoned car. This car was on the football field. This is where they found it. It was hush-hush. You didn't talk about that. He was just dead. You have to have a different response. I mean, in the past, if you go back in history, our response has always been, we're going to let the law handle it, uh, God handle it. Everybody handle their problems but themselves. You know, you have a right to defend yourself. We want people within this community to be like family and to look out for each other. We don't want them to always have to go to Europeans to solve their problems. They should be able to solve their own problems. You need to take care of your own business. True, true. beginning of this tragic murder, county judge and the mayor asked me to help facilitate because it was a crisis situation. I've been able to, to deal with the bankers and the uh, uh, professional officials that are white on the golf course and at the country club or, or in the black church or in the uh, community center. Uh, in the Boys and Girls Clubs. First name again was Walter Diggles. I think Jasper has, because of the sheer facts of the black leadership, has made more progress than any other community of this size in the country. 45% black population. Uh, when you look at the leadership position in the community, you see uh, African-American doctor practice in the hospital who has a patient load as large as any in the community, both black and white. You see the only hospital in this community that uh, is probably one of the largest uh, payrolls in this community uh, being run by an African-American. Uh, there's no fluke that the mayor won, uh, beat uh, against two whites, actually three whites and one black. He won majority without a runoff. Uh, you've got two African-Americans on that council that really governs this city. And that's why when you, you when you take a microscope and look at this community and say, you know, what's in this community? Well, how can it, how could uh, in the name of God could somebody in this community in 1998 commit a crime uh, uh, this bizarre? Sean Berry's polo boots, Bill King's Outback sandals, and Lawrence Brewer's uh, Nike tennis shoes. These guys had been in the penitentiary. They're out of touch with the real world. They're uh, back in a mindset that goes back to the 1920s and 1930s. And when they came out, they had in their head that the, the law here was like it was 50 years ago, that there was not going to be a vigorous search for the killer of a black man. Bill King was absorbed with these uh, terrorists type organization that exists throughout our country. You get a general idea of what he has on his body. 
where you have his gang affiliation, Confederate Knights of America, his Nazi affiliation with the uh, lightning boats, Aryan pride. One here is a little uh, tattoo of a hanging black man that's blown up next to a Klansman in a robe holding his hat and a burning cross. Did the same thing on uh, Brewer. But you've got that triangular clan affiliation, Confederate Knights of America. There's his patch, clan, burning cross, Confederate flag. Now, Sean Berry is a little bit harder to understand. <clears throat> By comparison, you can see that Sean Berry didn't have anything like the other guys in terms of tattoos. He's got this deal over here that says brotherhood. We couldn't connect it with any type of organization. The night that this happened, they were actually out looking for girls, drinking beer and looking for girls. I don't think they planned to do anything that night. It just so happened that the victim, James Bird, was alone on a dark street, fairly dark, uh, drunk, vulnerable, uh, pretty easy target, and they picked him up. The chain was there. Opportunity was there. They'd been drinking beer. They were all hyped up like a pack of dogs around the heels of a, a deer. And they just chained him up and started dragging him. And when they turned on that Huff Creek Road, uh, there's not a doubt in anybody's mind that those guys were having fun. Uh, they were slinging that body from side to side. And just drug him until they killed him. Sam, y'all get over here. Y'all come here and help these people. Renee! Renee! pictures of the victim's mangled body this afternoon as their district attorney, Guy James Gray, told members of the Bird family that they might want to leave the room. You could tell that they were visibly shaken, but uh, none of them... Uh, uh, really made any expression. They just seemed to look at the pictures and uh, in a very cold uh, stare. They looked at everything. Right before my father's murder, I just seen him the day before. We all was at a, a family gathering. Uh, my cousin's, uh, his niece, brought a shower, and um, he was playing my little girl, Taylor. It was the only uh, grandchild. And um, <clears throat> it's like I feel robbed, like somebody just snatched him away from the whole family, you know. Um, I don't blame any one particular race for what happened to my father. I blame three people that done it. And underneath... My smile and my face, I'm very deeply hurt and affected. And But I'm not out to get uh, sympathy from anyone. I just want people to be aware that this is a wake-up call for America, and it could have been me, it could have been you, it could have been Miss Cat or anybody. It's weird because I wouldn't have any kind of remorse or any kind of jitters or anything seeing them tortured the way my father was, and I never felt like that before. I know I couldn't sit through it. So it's hard to look on it at the television. And I know it'd be worse than I'm in court. 
so I just don't go. Sometimes I can't. Uh, sometimes I, I can't look at his pictures, and sometimes I, I just can't talk about it. And sometimes I can, so. It's just the way it is. one another perhaps more than we ever did to, to make eye contact um, to, to be more concerned I think than we ever were before and um, I think that's having an impact that uh, I think the white community feels we have to do that because a tragedy happened in the black community and I think the black community feels that 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 healing has to take place if, if it's necessary I think the white people do need to sometimes bend over backwards to help heal those wounds because apparently they're feeling wounds that we're not feeling. That's why I think taking down the cemetery fence was so important. There's several old fences up there separating family plots. But then I, when I walked out there one day, I realized it went the length of the cemetery that couldn't be a family. And, and, and so I asked someone, and they said, well, that's where the black people are buried. I was determined to bring that up to the spirituality committee to see if other people felt the way I did. And um, I, I talked to Reverend Kenneth Lyons, who I just greatly respect. I asked him if taking that fence down could be our first priority. Uh, this is the uh, 
place where James was buried. As you, as you can see, he was buried on the black side of the cemetery. And you, you can still see the tree line that divided the white part from the black cemetery. I didn't know it would be the way it is, but it makes the whole thing look like it was never a separate part. Like it was always just one cemetery. And now the fence is down it bring great consolation. Uh, and knowing that a barrier has been taken down and uh, Jasper is moving toward oneness. Jasper's moving toward greatness. I just learned it was a free graveyard. Did you know that? Well, my question is, they took the fence down. What does that really prove? Will a black person die now? Will they just drive around to the back and bury a black person? Or will they come to the front and you can still be buried at the front fence gate if you wanted to? All of us were born during segregated times, and we have to fight all our life against racism and segregation. And then you die and you're buried in a segregated graveyard. I just think that was the biggest slap in the face. I just was not aware. I just was not aware of that. And I saw some people's hearts changing. I saw some real sincere Caucasian people who were weeping just like me. They were crying, they were embarrassed. But now that's not speaking for the whole community. I got a lot of tattoos in prison. Every tattoo I have has to do with my heritage, some kind of way, Irish and Norse and the Vikings. I was in the Aryan circle, and I still am. This is the Celtic cross. It's typically what the skins used, the skinheads used to, to identify who they are. Along the side of my arms is, 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 is white power. It's what I believe in. White power says everything white pride says, as well as fuck you. A lot of white people are still with a guilt complex that they owe somebody something. And the black people can play that. Not all black people, not all white people, but that, that, that does happen a lot. And I would be willing to bet my job and all the money that I could possibly make next year that I could go into that cemetery where this prayer vigil is going on and I could look at these people and I can identify them and know who they are and I can meet them at a, at a club, I can meet them at a cafe or at a diner or at church and talk about black people, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, then, and, then, and then I find out that they're raised exactly like me. That they don't really want to be around them. That they really that they're okay. They're afraid of them. They are. They have a guilt thing about them. They feel like they may owe them something. They don't like that feeling, so they'd rather be away from them. But when this thing kicks off, they run out there and they, they join this prayer vigil and they're holding hands and saying we're getting along. And it's really not true. It's all fake. Before we move on, I have to say that I've watched this video a number of times in preparing for this, and it never ceases to put this lump in my throat. I start to shake, I get upset, and I get this anger that I just don't know 
what to do with it. So talk to me a little bit about your reaction each time you see this film. Well, I guess something everybody can relate to. I uh, look at it and I see all the flaws and the problems and the screwed up edits and the lost battles. But at the same time, I, I do, I am struck when, I fir- when it first rolls that it does, I hope, I think that it accomplished something we really set out to do, something that um, I noticed sitting in on the session uh, this morning, what radio does so well is really creates intimacy. It puts people in places that they couldn't normally be, and that was always our goal in every scene was to put the audience in a place that they couldn't normally go and put them inside someone's comfort zone. So I think seeing that opening scene again, it really reminded me that 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 was something that we worked at, and I think we accomplished a little bit. Marco? Um, I I actually closed my eyes for the first five minutes, uh, and, you know, I know who speaks. uh, So I was really impacted... Throughout at the both the graphicness of uh, what is uh, communicated and shared, and as Whitney has uh, um, expressed, that you, I feel like in each environment that I I am brought into, I feel the 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 the, the immediacy of what the people um, are experiencing. So I feel that there's a strong intimacy. I, I don't usually watch the film. I've seen it far too many times, but I've been watching it a little bit of late, and I'm always quite impacted by by it. Now, that's sort of an awkward thing to say to be the maker, but that is my feeling that I'm really sort of distressed. And do you think that that level of honesty could have been accomplished had you not decided to divide the team you, Marco, speaking to the blacks of Jasper, and you, Whitney, speaking to the whites? Uh, you know, I think Whitney and I probably feel this, uh, a similar way on this. I think you could make a film where, I, you know, Whitney could have made the film. He could have gone to Jasper and spoken to both black and white residents, and I'm sure it would have been a, a compelling film, and I could have done the, the same. However, it would have been different, and I think that's really the – that really under – it's really the best way to answer it. I, I think some degree of intimacy would have been found and people would have spoken. But we like to say that there's a difference between uh, sharing common experience and explaining experience. And I always use the example of gender, that when women talk about feminine hygiene with one another, it's shared and understood, and if a woman were to explain to a, talk to a man about it, they would be explaining it. And usually when I say that, people, I always see the nods and everybody, <laughs> everybody gets it. So in that way, I think it's that, that's a sense of race. But Whitney probably has a good example to... Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's interesting, especially as sort of a middle-class white liberal. I look out in this audience, and I see a lot of people who look like me, and not very many people who look like Marco or Gianifer. And I think that, uh, you know, people like us who, um, speaking just to the white people in the room, who are, have a really clear um, mission in their lives, a mission in telling stories, a mission to address social issues. I don't think anybody would be here. Nobody's here to make money, I don't think. Is that <laughs> probably true? Um, and I think that you're so confident in your... Um, in your mission that you forget the impact that you have on people. And I think you really forget that here you are, a middle-class white person showing up in these places, and you 
you know, you are the man or you are the, you know, you are the power structure and you seriously, seriously impact the story. And I'll give you just a, a quick example that Marco mentioned. When we first started making the film, I went down right away after the murder and started shooting and talking to people. And one of the places, and I, we, before we had really come up with the idea of how we were going to make the film, and I interviewed people from across the spectrum. Uh, one of the places I went to was a, was a, um, an auto body shop that where a lot of uh, black men hung out and worked during the day, and at night they hung out and drank beer and talked to each other. And I got there and, you know, with my cameraman, and we got out and we got access and started talking to these people, and they shared all this incredible stuff. I, they brought out James Bird's girlfriend, who they knew, and, you know, they were really, and, you know, I went off, you know, patting myself on the back, you know, how good I am at what I do. I can just get into this, you know, poor southern town and connect with these people. And then later on, Marco went down, and he ended up at the same auto body shop. And when he came back with the footage, we started watching it, it was suddenly revealed that they had lied about everything. They changed their names, <laughs> where they were from, who owned the auto body shop, their relationships to each other, everything. So even though I think there was a kernel in truth what they were telling me, that there was such a level of distrust, me walking in there, that there was no way that I was going to get the same level of information and understanding that Marco got going back later on. And I think there's that, that sense that when you have a microphone or when you have a, a video, a, a camera, that that alone is going to be the thing that prompts them to immediately tell you the truth. And I think that that's something that is... When you come back and you find out you've been lied to, it hurts even more because I'm the figure of authority. I came down here to help you tell your story, and you lie to me. So it's sort of like this, this, this sense of, of this expectation of the truth and then dealing with your own sort of being betrayed in the, in the process of gathering the information. But I'm also curious to know if there was um, – there are southern sensibilities and there are northern sensibilities. Was that an equal – bridge that you had to cross to get to the truth of the, of the matter? I think that there's, you know, that what you're going to hear is there's, there's two truths here, and that was the story of the movie. I think that I can speak for myself. There was a real sense of, um, you know, you're a Yankee coming down here. You don't understand race. You don't understand, uh, you know, the realities of how we live. And this is, you know, someone who grew up in Boston in the 70s during the busing and the riots. I certainly have a sense of how race plays out in communities. And the other thing that was nice, though, is that I think that in some ways New Yorkers, which I am sort of become one now after 20 years there, are a lot like Texans. We think we're the best, we live in the best place in the world. We feel sorry for people who don't really live there. And, you know, we kind of are a little bit, you know, paternal with them. It's okay. I'm sorry to understand. And Texans are pretty much exactly the same way. They kind of felt sorry for this poor Whitney. He lives in New York City, that, that backwards you know, provincial town. But I think Marco had a, had a very different experience. Uh, I think that's a... I mean, I, I did have a different experience on the one hand, and maybe in that regard, race was a trump card because I... Uh, no one in the black community related to me as though I was from someplace else. It was as though I was very much part of the community, and I guess the... Race as a factor, race as common bond, race as common experience sort of overcame, uh, regional difference. And, and it's, and I mean, the, the light anecdote in it all is that certainly arriving in, uh, southeastern Texas with, uh, shoulder length, uh, dreadlocks was a distinguishing, 
uh, feature that I had from everybody else in the town. The fact of the matter is, is that that year Ricky Williams won the Heisman Trophy and he had dreadlocks. So, uh, and football after God, football is the next most important thing in, in Texas. So, in that regard, you know, I, you know, Ricky kind of paved the way for a guy with, <laughs> with dreadlocks and, and, you know, hundreds of years of racism in this country paved the way for a northerner to speak with black southerners. So you were concerned about a parent setting you off, certainly your pattern of speaking, but what preconceived notions did you have of the South before you got down there? What were you expecting to walk into when you got to Texas? Well, you know, as someone who saw the the crime on television being reported, I I went down there um, and saw that there was a Klan rally that was going to take place in Jasper in support of the white community um, because they needed a lot of support at that time after the murder of James Byrd, apparently. The, uh, and so I really expected, I went down there with a lot of prejudice and preconceived notions. I thought I was going to, you know, meet this, you know, these sort of racist whites and these very sort of, you know, the fat southern sheriff who was going to, um, you know, sort of, you know, run the town. And I had, a, I had a lot of things. And here he walked in this town, as you saw in the film, that it was, had a black mayor, first of all, 50% white, 50% black, half the city council was black. They governed together. They worked together. Billy Rolls, the sheriff, was this new age guy who was always like crying, you know. <laughs> and, yeah, and it was, it was really, it, it, it kind of, it kind of, you know, caught me off guard. But, mm-hmm. but then when you started talking to the people, what, what, you realize the different realities that they lived in, that the white community looked at the murder and said, this has nothing to do with us. This is a bolt of lightning that hit this town. This is, you know, it's actually lucky that, that it happened here because we're such a strong community that that's why God picked us for this to happen here. And it really is something that has no relationship to this community. And the black community was, he said, this is business as usual. This reflects what we've been living with for centuries, and it's just part of the continuum. And there really was these really divergent realities, the two communities. And what was also striking was that as the film opens up, you know, here we go, we're getting ready for this showdown. There's this sense of almost joy in the white community in, in, in expressing themselves freely. But in the black community, you see the years of pain and struggle and how they've just been worn down and this um, muffled rage suppressed by everyday life. Talk to me about dealing with running into that. I mean, did you ever have, this is basically a two-part question, was there ever a time when either one of you were at the point that you were listening to them and questioning what was going on in your head? Because it seems to me that when you see the Bubba's, there's this sort of, at some point, like, you know what I mean. You know what I'm talking about. Talk to me about that experience. You know, it, it's funny because I, I think that something that you guys can all probably relate to is that when just when somebody says the worst thing you can imagine, you're going, yes, I got it. So it, it's... Could you say it again? Yeah, it, it, it's it, it's so so it's sort of a it's sort of it's sort of a complex thing. I think that one of the pro, one of the issues for me is the way everybody works very differently. But one of the ways the way that I work, I really feel like you have to give something out real to get something back real. So effectively, my 
really engaging with these people and becoming who they wanted me to be so they would feel comfortable uh, talking to me was an incredibly draining process because we would, you know, starting at 6.30 in the morning, we would shoot, you know, the bub is at 7 and shoot all the way to 11 o'clock at night and effectively becoming each, building these, these, these tr- relationships that were very, that were trust-based on both sides. They really had to trust me to do it. And um, I had to I had to live up to that trust, and I. But you know, just when I would think, you know, God, I'm 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 really playing a game of gotcha here, and I'm going down here, and I'm effectively becoming this, you know, the, the, I'm morphing into this this sounding board that they that, that will allow them to talk to me, and just at that point, as would happen with every single white person I met, they'd lean over to me and say. You know, did, did you know that James Burke was a drug dealer, and you know he really was this terrible guy. He was really, and without fail, there was it would suddenly like crystallize my head. Here we are. It's it's not just these simple relationships. It's part of a greater pattern and a greater equation. And so it allowed me to step back from that and realize and focus on doing my job. Marco, since it was a bit easier for you to go into the black community, did you find that same sort of struggle? Or was it more? Was it a shorter-term struggle for you? Uh, my, my, my struggles were that my struggles were more personal in in that I I had a fair amount of personal rage um, at the event, and I have a personality that's not afraid to express rage um, as need be. And to uh, come into this community and and find what I thought at first was an absence of rage, and then gradually a, a understanding that the rage was muted, as you said, uh, that was my kind of transition from you know being feeling personally impacted by this. And I think there, I think there isn't any way to to suggest or say that I'm outside of the paradigm or outside of the equation. I'm an American. I'm a black American. I've had uh, racial experiences in this country. So in some sense, what's going on there is about me, even though I'm there to observe and record them. Uh, So that was the, the tricky thing, is not to let my own personal... So while I share with Whitney the, the notion that you have to give something to get something, in, in that sense you have to give something of this yourself and be vulnerable, I felt that I had to repress or suppress my own rage uh, because, I, because it wasn't evident in the general circles that I was in, and I didn't want to influence or inform that. I didn't want them to be me. I wanted them to be me, but I didn't want them to be me in the film. So that was the the overwhelming challenge that I experienced uh, in terms of navigating, you know, my own personal um, values and the the values of of the people of Jasper. So the two of you go into this town. You decide to separate. One with the white community, one with the black community, both having histories that are different. But because you're friends, a similarity. You know each other well, you understand each other, and obviously get along. Talk to me then about the amount of tape collected and then the editing process. If both of you have your emotional ties to these pieces of tape. We heard earlier in the editing section, session that one-on-one is difficult when you have a producer and an editor. But talk to me about the two of you having to 
call this tape down into this final piece? It was it was pretty brutal. And I think that just to give you a sense of what the what the process was, is each Marco and I each spent about 100 days in Jasper during the course of 1999. And um, we shot somewhere in the neighborhood 240, 250 hours worth of, of tape. Um, during that time, we didn't show our any any footage to each other. We started off with a very with a manifesto of how we would shoot, the types of questions we would ask, you know, whether we use sticks or not, and what, whether we, um, you know, some of the ways how we were going to try and how we were going to try and shoot the interview, situational versus sit down, these things. That quickly went out out the window uh, once we got into this, in, you know, the, the process of making the film, and uh, we pretty much started making our own films. And then after we shot for this year. We came back and couldn't figure out how we were going to do it. So we each got separate editors. And um, I, by happenstance, I ended up with a black editor. Mark ended up with a white editor and started cutting all the different, all our different scenes and ideas and thoughts and you know, sequences that, that we wanted, select reels that we wanted to. We spent six months doing that. And then we presented it. We brought a third editor in and presented it to each other and it effectively tried to present our stories and the initial scary part was that they they weren't the same story and that many times when you watch the film it's not about he said she said it's more about these parallel realities because when something that was so strong in the white community i thought oh great marcos must have covered this on the other side and there'd be nothing on it well that didn't mean anything to them. Example, uh, the the belt buckle that one kid showed up at school with a Confederate belt buckle, and it was in the news, and he was kicked out of school. It was a, Marco was like, "You got to cover the story. It's this." And he had there was a big story in the black community, and I said, "Well, you know, no one in the white community was talking about it or cared about it." So once we realized that and realized that we were not going to be telling this back and forth story, but more trying to create, you know, a portrait of the town. Um, then we set to work. It took us about a year once we started that process to cut the uh, 90 minutes. So, and then what I also picked up in the film is that you have sort of a non-narrating narrator with the reporter. Talk to me about that decision because with that much tape and an issue that is so passionate and can fuel rage and disgust in people, the film tells its own story, but for these little snippets of Mr. Lunt popping in, who has his own sort of agenda on on mic and then off mic. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the both is, both of us should talk about Mike because that was that was one of the uh, initial battlegrounds of of uh, of the edit is that you know finding Mike. I thought, well, what a what a gift from the heavens to have this tiny town and there's this radio station guy who is reporting the story. He effectively become the narrator. We don't have to put title cards. We don't have to... This guy can explain the events and, and advance the narrative. Um, but, you know, as we start to watch the footage, whose narrative is he advancing? Whose story is he telling? And as you... This idea of being the subjective media, what, who, what, is, what is he... What's, what part of the story is he reporting? And so, as you talk about later on, we go off mic with him and he, you know, off the air with him, and we spend a lot of time with him where he talks about himself and his relationship and what he thinks about the crime to say, look, yeah, this is a story, this, these are, these, these are the certain facts or ways to advance the story, but they're not necessarily, they're not, they're not untainted, that they're not, it's not a pure narrative. 
it's a piece of the narrative. But um, it, it, you know, from a just a purely uh, logistical standpoint, it was nice to not have to fight the battle of title cards and narration. Marco, what was your first thought when you saw the saw Lunt as sort of like this non-narrative narrator? Uh, there, there are two things that I, you know, considered with Mike. I make movies, so I, I certainly appreciated the value of a narrator, a de facto narrator in a film that didn't require, that never could have allowed for either Whitney or I to narrate because of the, the you know, the construct of the film, who would narrate, whose voice, whose perspective. So Mike was a a, a, a clear value in there. I, I think that I was always stressing that... W- Mike had to be seen beyond the value of narrator and seen as a member of the community from which he is. And so you've not seen it in, in, in the, the, because you've only seen the first third of the film. Mike Loud has never seen, I shouldn't say never, there's one scene he, he's in, uh, in the black community, but for all intents and purposes, Mike is only seen with whites. And that, and yet he's an effective, reporter within the town. He's covering all the nuances of the town on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, the places where he is intimate, where he socializes, is not with blacks. And so that it's it's a really important it's really important to appreciate what that signifies. There's no such thing as an objective or omniscient narrator. He has a bias. He derives from a particular place. Listen to what his advertisements are, et cetera, et cetera. So this was a lot of the kind of discourse uh, we would have in the room, in the editing room. And then we tried to think about what might be the parallel, since there wasn't a literal parallel to Mike Loud. And I, I don't know if it succeeds or not, or whether it was ultimately a rationalization on our part to try to find common ground. But we thought that Walter Diggles, the county official, kind of plays a similar kind of role uh, where you, you know, he sort of narrates, he gives us the data about the, the, the demographics of the town, and you see him in different places where he's talking omnisciently, and yet ditto with Walter when there when we see him later on in the film in intimate private spaces, he's in the home of the bird family. Never see Mike in the home of the bird family, see Mike with one of the family members of one of the accused. And so in that way we we at least made a conscious effort to find um, parallels um, when we didn't sort of initiate that in, in uh, shooting. Did you have concerns about finding parallels in the setting in which you spoke to your subjects? Black people, beauty shop, homes, white people, restaurant, coffee shops, then in the streets. Talk to me about the decisions of where you would find these gatherings of people. How did you decide where would be the best place to find your subject matter? Uh, You know, there'll there'll be two answers for sure. I mean, I think it's true probably for anybody who does the work we do, you're, you're, on the one hand, you're just looking for them and wherever they will allow themselves to um, be spoken to or where they will allow themselves to reveal themselves. I probably was aware of uh, the, the Bubba's in training and, and the breakfast thing. I may have had breakfast there once and so was kind of conscious of Whitney working there. It's hard for me to recall at this point. 
certainly felt, you know, sought a communal space for um, that would be parallel to the the breakfast space. And the, the auto body shop that Whitney referred to had been one example of that, did make it into the film. Ultimately, the beauty salon uh, provided that. I think I was, you know, I thought that was a real opportunity. You know, I think that one of the things that I've learned from this film that if, if Whitney and I were to in, engage such an uh, enterprise again, we might effort to be much more strict in terms of uh, how we go about it, in terms of manifesto, that we would you know, draw up a list and say these places, these places, these places, these places, these places, uh, in order to ensure that an audience doesn't disregard what I think is in the film, which is that there is a kind of understanding of our differences and our commonalities. But if you have everybody, if we have, you know, everybody in homes, everybody drinking beer, everybody at church, everybody, you would then feel like you were maybe, you know, if there's sociologists in the room, we'd feel like the, the, the study was, was pure. But we didn't really set out to try to control uh, our environment. I think we were just looking for compelling characters who were willing to talk to us and who, and because we kept coming back. You know, it, it's, it, it's hard. And when I watch one of the things that about the film that, um, you know, disappoints me is there's the lack of white female voices in the film. And, uh, but one of this, you know, the other thing is that films or, you know, radio documents, they demand certain things that I had to do. There's certain people that I had to go after. And um, the fact that a lot of the power structure was white, I ended up with these people that I had to go in the film, the district attorney, the sheriff, who's a white male. Um, it happened to be that the, that, the, that the killers that I spent time with, the families, the two families that were from there, there were no women in the families. There was a brother and uh, a father in one of the families, and there was just a father in the in the other family. So there was there was a lack of female voices there. When Mike showed up as the radio host, he became someone that we decided it was going to be used. When Trent, the guy with the tattoos, approached me in Radio Shack one day and asked me if I wanted to learn about white supremacy, I was like, sure, yeah. He had to go in the film. He became effectively, you know, he was a Bill King um, living in the community. And, uh, but, but what, so what I tried to do with the Bubba's is because they really reflected, um, the, uh, the, the sort of the mainstream middle class whites, um, that I tried to be very responsible about making them representational. Meaning that I put in their mouths things that I heard all over the community. I never put things, they said things that were much worse and much more unpleasant, but it would have been, irresponsible to put that in the film. If they're going to rep be representational, represent the slice of Jasper's community, then I want to put things that I hear everywhere. So I worked very hard to do that. And that was the way I tried to be responsible about who ended up in the film and what they said. So we're about to open the floor up to questions, and I think if you all want to start lining up, that would be a good thing. Um, I, let me do this first, though. I'd like to ask you, because race is such a difficult thing to talk about, I want you to own your question. So if you give me your name, just your first names when you ask your question, I think it may make for a warmer discussion. Agreed? All right. So one, before I get to your question, you guys were separate in the town. You didn't 
stay in the same hotel. You didn't talk to me about the phone conversations that you must have had as this is going on, sort of like your own sort of processing and keeping each other sane during this. Well, it was it was interesting because I think that I had bigger concerns than Marco about people discovering that we were working together. And our first thing we said, we weren't, when part of our manifesto said we weren't going to lie about it, but we weren't going to tell people what we were doing. And I was concerned if the families of the accused learned that I was working on a project about race with, a, with, with, a, with another black filmmaker, that they wouldn't give me access. And I was concerned about what that would say about me. Uh, Marco was less concerned, I think, about how it would play out uh, in, in his community. Um, but sort of a one, one thing that's sort of interesting about the town is a town of 7,000 people in a year there, Marco and I never crossed paths um, other than on the courthouse lawn. And that was sort of a real, it, it made it kind of easy because the town was so segregated that we never saw each other, although the white people, oh, I have all, you know, we have black friends and we do this and we do that. I never saw any evidence of it. And um, so uh, I think early on we started talking, but as it went along, we kind of just sort of drifted off into our own communities. Yeah, Whitney is, I think that we, we did operate in a rather clandestine fashion throughout, uh, but in some measure it wasn't even a necessity. Early going, I stayed at a Ramada and Whitney stayed at the, the Belgium Hotel where the, the Bubba's are, and we made efforts late at night to kind of meet in the, you know, back corner of the Ramada in parking lot just to kind of, uh, <laughs> Deep Throat was there, I think. <laughs> and and uh, other times, you know, we'd both be on the courthouse lawn and, you know, we would phone each other and, and suggest that it would be uh, good to meet with each other. I think we were, we were con- trying to be very conscientious about how to engage people, how to gradually build trust. So as time went on, more and more people knew what we were doing. It wasn't an issue. And as Whitney has said, we never really found ourselves in in the same place filming the same things. And in a town of 7,000 people, it would have been very easy to put two and two together anyway if you have two guys from New York working for PBS making a documentary. Don't you know each other? You know, so uh, yeah, we, we we just we just we tried to stay apart as need be, um, and then found that we didn't really need to to do that because we never saw each other unless we were back in New York together. Okay. I'd like to open the floor up, being mindful of the previous session on editing, we can keep our questions short. I have just uh, one comment, one question. My name's Carrie, and. Uh, uh, first of all, I'd like to commend you on uh, doing a really raw and uh, provocative uh, project here um, that named uh, many of the everyday issues that lead up to major events like what happened to James Bird. And I thought you did that really effectively and just showed it um, more powerfully than anyone could say it. And um, but I'd like I'm very interested in the two tones of two tone productions. Um, uh, in 1997, I worked with a, a, a co-produced a project about a hate crime um, that happened to a Vietnamese-American man named Tian Lee who was stabbed to death in Tustin, California. Uh, my partner was uh, a lifelong friend uh, who was Vietnamese-American, and, and um, I think individually and collectively we felt like um, spending so much time 
on this subject matter picked us up and moved us to a place we never thought we would go. Um, and I'm just wondering uh, what, how it has changed your relationship and uh, your uh, knowledge of yourselves. Uh, fair question and a really good question and a question that we are asked a, a lot and I think equally comfortable to talk on. I have known Whitney for, I can't do the math. It's at least, could it be 20 years? Over. Over 20 years. For a long time. And so therefore, and that was that certainly informed part of how we sought to make this film in that we knew that we had common ground and yet there was the recognition or the willingness to acknowledge that perhaps we also had uncommon ground. Race is fucking hard, you know? It's, it's hard, period. It's just really, really hard. It's hard to uh, address within one's community and ac across one's community. It's, uh, it's, uh, for me, it's, it's profoundly demoralizing. It's occasionally uplifting and, and um, Rejoicing, and and the thing that I have come to to need and demand and wish for is that it must be collaborative. It must. This is for me. I don't know what you guys want to do, but for me, it must be with people who are willing to carry their share of the weight. And when I say people, I'm talking about white people. It's very easy, more often than not, as Whitney has uh, indicated, with liberal-minded whites to see themselves outside of the paradigm. It's white racists, or blacks are victims, Asians are victims, Latinos are victims, gay people are victims, everybody's a victim but the, the white. And what I have found and, and appreciated in working with Whitney over, the, I don't know, 1998, so it's six years we've been, six plus years we've been kind of doing the Jasper two-step, um, is that Whitney has been willing to carry his share of the weight. And that's broad, but it just means that it's not as though he sees himself outside of the paradigm. That he, you know, just as he said, I mean, said to today, that he looks, he can look at the room and say, well, it's mostly white people. So I'm going to talk to you as being part of your community as opposed to being unafraid to talk. So I, I think that that's been the, the for me, the, the personal uh, satisfaction and joy in the midst of a very difficult engagement. And it's not purely because it's fighting over things that we both really believe in and, and ultimately see differently. It's just that race is a really burdensome um, engagement, and yet it's a profoundly important one to me. Do you ever feel like you're... In, oh, go ahead. <laughs> Do you ever feel like you're in the role of the educator more than friends sometimes when it comes to race? Either one. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, without choosing, yeah, I think that we've, we've you know, we've had a unique experience in doing, in spending so much time working on this project in a specific way. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it, it's, it's hard, because it's, it's, educators, it always, always 
feel like when we start talking about the stuff, it makes it feel like it's work or distasteful or I'm trying to tell you what you need to learn or what's wrong or these are my experiences I'm going to share with you as, a, as opposed to trying to share the idea that it's such an enriching experience to engage in and that it actually enhances your life as opposed to being something that you have to feel guilty about and recognize yourself. I think one of the most, you know, what this man asked about, what I learned about myself, one of the most profound experiences was recognizing that I had an identity outside of Whitney Dow. It's very, I think, as a, as a white male, you know, in America, you walk around, I'm, I, I can walk in any room as I feel as, I walk in as Whitney Dow. I come to that hotel lobby and I'm Whitney Dow. I never think of myself outside of that, that I'm somehow part of a, that, that I have, a, have an identity that I haven't created myself. And recognizing that um, I do have an identity. I'm not, I'm not just Whitney Dow. I'm, you know, a white male American of a certain you know class, and this is the this is the thing that you have to understand, especially when you're doing the work that we do. I think what Marco said is it's once you recognize that you're in the paradigm, you're not fighting outside from outside and saying, "Okay, I'm going to change. I need to change the world." It's really easy to change the world. You just kind of change yourself, and once you realize that, you see opportunities all over the place, and you're not trying to take care of things outside of yourself, but recognizing. Um, what you're trying to, you know, recognizing, you know, things within yourself. In the context of your relationship with each other, though, is there that, Marco, for you, is there ever that chance or that, oppor- not shouldn't say opportunity, what am I thinking? Is there ever that instance where you feel like I'm, I'm not lecturing, but I'm giving, educating, talking, in, in working out your interpersonal relationship? The problem is Marco is an educator. <laughs> is that he's a professor at NYU and he does lecture because I, can, <laughs> I know from experience working the edit room that he does lecture a lot. Uh-huh. I, I, I carry around my personal soapbox whenever I need it to be able to stand on to let people know and I am accused of that everywhere. And I, and I wear it proudly, however. Fair enough. Hi, my oh. name is Melissa Robbins. No, I think oh, I'm sorry. I didn't see two microphones. The guy in the blue is too tall for me. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Mr. Haiku. Uh-huh. Uh, hi, my name is Robin, and um, I have a question for Whitney. Um, I mean, it seems like in Marco's experience of interviewing the black residents of Jasper, there was a lot of shared experience and a shared sense of pain and indignation over what had happened, but clearly, or I'm presuming that you didn't share a lot of the same sentiments uh, when it came to race and and a lot of a lot of the racism of the people that you were interviewing and so I'm wondering you mentioned earlier that you felt like you it was this ultimate gotcha in that you know you really had to put yourself in a position of making them trust you and feel like they could open up and say all these really you know horrible repugnant comments and then you know you knew that you were going to go back in the editing room and you were going to take that stuff and you were going to present it to a wider audience who was who were going to judge these people and you talked a little bit about feeling like you couldn't put certain things in there because you didn't want them to be, to be representative. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that sense of, of responsibility and just how you negotiated, you know, doing interviews with people that you knew you really just fundamentally disagreed with about a lot of things. I, I think that what, what my goal was in doing it is to really be honest, you know, really be really strict with myself and honest to my own interpretation. All we can do when we go out and do this is like give a representational a representation of our experience. And, you know, one of the things that we did and we talked about before we showed, put the film on the air or showed it anywhere, we went down to Jasper and showed it to each person who was in it individually and sat down with them by ourselves 
Marco went to the people he spent time with, I went to the people that I spent time with, and showed the film and got their reactions from it. And it was very gratifying because when they saw it, not to a person, they all liked the film and they all thought it was accurate. And they all thought that they were that they were fairly represented. And um, it's, I mean, I think it's a little different in radio, but, I mean, you know, when you come home with 20 hours of, of uh, tape and what you choose to put in there, and it's even more manipulative in filmmaking because of the visual element. You know, if somebody says something, you cut away to someone who smiles, it means one thing. If someone says something, you cut away, and they're frowning, it means something entirely different. So I tried to be very, very strict with myself, knowing I want to be able to show this person to it. And I said to everybody I said, who participated in the film, you are. I, I don't care if you like your your rep, how you're represented in the film. I don't care if you like the film, but I guarantee you, I will portray you fairly and accurately. And to a person that I showed them to him, nobody nobody questioned how they are portrayed in the film. Uh, all, I, all I really want to say, and this is, I, I think it's inevitable that we pick people to be in our stories who in some way reflect some aspect of who we are. What we might be struggling with, engaging, um, agreeing with or not. But I, 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 So I, I don't, you know, I've known Whitney, as he's indicated, more than 20 years. I don't think Whitney is the any of the people in the Bubba's, but that doesn't mean that they're this this struggle to contend with, to question, to try to find one's place in the racial paradigm, which in, in many ways is what the Bubba's are doing. It's very easy to hear their negation, but think about what that means. They are, they are thrust into seeing themselves now as having an identity. They are, and the first reaction is a protective one. Let's blame the victim. Let's distance ourselves. Let's not see ourselves as part of the paradigm. But in fact, and, and that's, this is why I, I, you know, maybe this will seem unfair, Whitney, to say, but I think that it's, one shouldn't sort of listen to the, the whites and say, and, he, and then hear Whitney and say, oh, Whitney must not uh, share those viewpoints. Yeah, the literal sense is no, he doesn't share those viewpoints, but trying to navigate and figure out where he fits into the situation is a, a common ground. And in that way, that's what's going on for myself in the black community. If you could see the whole film, you know, Walter Diggles is one part of my identity. Ray Lewis, who you haven't met, is another part of my identity. And each one of those blacks, Margina Wade, are all me on some sense and yet not me at all. And I, I think that, you know, just to, to, to answer that, I mean, I, I look at someone like Trent, the guy who, end, who we ended the clip with, and picking what he said there, and what he said to me was, again, I see myself in him when he said, you know, we, blacks make us uncomfortable. We feel like we owe them something. We don't like that feeling, so it's easier to be apart with them. That's not a radical thing, and I think that's something that every white person can relate to at sometimes. You do feel that sense of obligation and not really understanding the relationship, and it's easier to push it, a, push it aside. So I think that Marco's right. We're, each thing that we, ultimately, each thing that we're putting in there has something to do with our own view of the world as opposed to just trying to make a perfect, you know, ethnographic film. 
Okay. Your question, please. Hi, my name is Melissa. I just wanted to say, first of all, thank you for an amazing film. Um, and Robin's question was quite similar to the first part of mine. Um, but the second part of that would be, I, w- I would like to hear both of you, I guess, speak a little bit about balance. I mean, the, the film is sort of set up in a balanced way, black, white, you know, 50-50 time. But what, what you felt meant, like, balance ended up meaning, you know, in dealing with each community or in dealing with the film as a whole, as far as journalistically, you know, f- fair and representational. And I mean, you're dealing with a fairly small community, a fairly consistent community in many ways, you know, just by geography and so forth. So, so what, what sort of standard did you feel like in the end made it feel, you know, balanced? Well, this, it's a, uh, I don't think we ever set out to say we are going to be balanced journalistically. I don't think we, in spite of Peabody's and DuPont's and awards that you get that, that denotes you as a, a journalist, I don't think we went there thinking of ourselves as journalists. Journalists were all the other people, and we were the storytellers. Uh, yet we might be journalists, but we were very much uh, preoccupied with representation and all the issues of power dynamic that go along with race and the most precise way of saying it is that who speaks first who speaks last and every you know our first trailer that we did to try to raise money started with the the first voice in the film is the white sheriff and it ended with whites in some way and i said well i have a problem with this the, the, the premise or the, the thesis is introduced by whites and concluded by whites. And an early response from Whitney, which was a valid one, was that, but that's, you know, the, cine- the cinema is really good. You know, and he was right. The sheriff says certain things and whoever it was that ended it was really good. But I said, if we're doing a film about race, we need to be thinking about these things. And so we, we fought, I lectured, <laughs> Whitney didn't listen or whatever 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 we did we did that and and so if you it, you know it is a it is a pathetically funny kind of situation and this is in some ways why this film took so long to make because we every frame every scene everything is negotiated and negotiated and negotiated and I don't think we'd ever say to you that we set out to make compromises but we simply negotiated and discussed in our editor I mean every discussion every cut everything came back to race fuck everything we would pick up the, the morning newspaper and be talking about it and before you know it we were talking about race so I think that the best thing I can say to you if it's something to take away is that we willingly or we were obliged to engage ourselves on, on that. And because the, at the end of the day, there were only two people making the film, Whitney and, and myself. There was, no, there was no radio or TV station. There was no executive, somebody or other over us who got to make the final decision. And in fact, we rejected relationships with certain broadcasters because of that very fact. And so working through PBS and PBS's money allowed us to, to have final cuts. So we just worked at it. I have to apologize. We have run over our time. But I'd like to put this last question. What do you want those who see the film, those in this room, to take away from this? What is your hope for for this film and its life? Both? (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll say something, you know, briefly and brief and pithy. You know, I, I mean, I think that something going back to what I earlier sort of, I think... 
hopefully all the work that we do all the time that you're that you're it's very easy to look at it on a surface level and think it's a story about Texas or a story about a guy who loves bugs in Central Park or a story about a woman getting out of prison and recognizing ourselves in those stories and how they relate to us. And I hope that when people see it, they don't look at it and think, well, this is, this is about this town in Texas and this terrible event and really turn into, you know, another, you know, episode in the ongoing, you know, mini, you know, long running series on race that we seem to be doing, but really recognize sort of how it affects, it relates to them as, um, as, uh, part of the continuum. You know, I, I, how long, I, I've been here for about a day and I still don't know why I was invited. Hmm. Uh, I mean, and I mean that, I'm not stupid, but I just mean that, you know, we do something different than you guys do. So, uh, I'm, I'm trusting that you're all, are, you all are smart enough to discern what there is to learn from two visual documentarians, not necessarily television documentarians, two storytellers, not necessarily journalists, and how that in, in relates to, to your work and whether there, I'm hoping that there was something from what you saw today in addition to what you heard. Uh, maybe there's also something from how we approach this story that's going to inform uh, work that you all set out to do. Uh, I certainly have learned from you all, the, the radio people, if, if you will, and listening to some of the radio documentaries and coming in with a, a expectation or, or a, uh, a misnomer that all radio documentaries necessitated narration and being very much wishing that in the film work I do that I don't need narration and yet I've heard several in the in the couple panels that I sat in on where there wasn't any narration and, and, and really appreciating that that after a brief contextualization of what's going on you can that the people themselves can really speak. So speak and communicate and, and, and present a, a real depth of understanding that has nothing to do with seeing people. And so I guess I just want to try to bring it back to, you know, I don't know how many of you closed your eyes and listened to to Billy Rolls, the sheriff, and uh, Dory Coleman and his son Rodney, uh, mortuary directors, uh, the first voice being uh, law enforcement, white, second voice being um, funeral directors and black, both having, both essentially being the first two sets of official people connected to this crime, both talking about it from their very particular and personal and historical perspectives. And I hope that, you know, that from this you are reminded of the power of language, probably something that you all recognize on a daily basis. But I, I find that to be the, perhaps the most important um, component of the of the race wars, of the race problems, is language. And of all the issues having to do with difference is the use of language. So I hope that you take away from this some reminder that how you employ language, who gets to say what, is really going to shape or inform our understanding, those who listen and watch, and whatever we might do to affect some change in our world. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.